Our reading is from the book of Malachi, from chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 5. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Our ways are not your ways. May this word that has gone out from your mouth not return to you empty, but may it accomplish, even in us, what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. In Jesus' name, amen. Malachi 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. Well, we are currently in a Fourth, in the fourth week of Lent, a time of reflection, and we are looking at a series on prophetic warning. Today, we are looking at the words of Malachi. And before we jump into the text itself, I'd like to bring you up to speed on what's going on in the passage. Some of God's people have returned to Jerusalem. They have returned to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. And in their minds, they have big plans for themselves. They want to return to the days of David and Solomon, when uh, Judah was a great nation. They want to be a great nation again, and that's their expectation. But it, it doesn't happen. And because it doesn't happen, the wheels come off the revival. Many of you are familiar, probably from last uh, fall, when we looked at Nehemiah, we looked at chapter 13, and we looked at after all of the revival, after all of the restoring of the temple and the walls, we got to the last chapter of the book when Nehemiah is literally pulling people's hair out because people are renting out rooms in the temple, they're trading on the Sabbath, and they're intermarrying with people who don't worship Yahweh. Things didn't go well at that point, and they continue to get worse. By the time of Malachi, they'd been hit with another 
famine. And they were calling out, they were crying out to God for justice as they saw it. Political justice, we want to be that great power. Economic success, we want to be like we were in the time of Solomon and now for survival. Lord, you're even threatening our survival. And around this time, Malachi comes on the scene and he brings a message to a backsliding people. And this is set up like a court case. You can see that in verse in chapter 3, verse 5, which begins with, so I will come to put you on trial. And Malachi is God's prosecutor. And in chapters 1 and the first part of 2, he makes a number of accusations. He calls the leaders, cold, uh, he accuses the leaders of coldness of heart, of contemptuousness in the way they treat their role and the way they treat the, the temple and the things in the temple. And he accuses them of shielding themselves from his searing examination of their own character. And it's a fair accusation, given on what we saw even at the end of Nehemiah, these things were definitely taking place. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop and say, look, people, it's the leaders that are the problem. He comes to the, the people as well and levels accusations against them, saying you can't blame your leaders. You are at fault too. You bring lame, blind animals for sacrifices. You are the ones that are marrying the non-Yahweh worshippers. And even worse, you are divorcing your Jewish wives in order to marry them. Now, we're in Lent. And my experience is that in court cases, the, the people who I've worked with in my practice who have ended up going to court, the dock is not a place of reflection. The dock tends to be a place to defend, to justify, to protest innocence. And that's certainly what Israel do in, in verse two, chapter two, verse 17, we, we read this response. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? So they both justify, and then they accuse God of not fulfilling his responsibility to meet their economic, political, and survival needs. Now, that first one, justification, we use labels all the time. We call people murderer, sexual abuser, drug dealer. These are the bad people. We've created a society where we are either okay or not okay by our own judgments and labels. Or we blame the messed up world for our behavior, which is sort of like another way of blaming God. If the world wasn't broken and sinful, I wouldn't be broken and sinful. It's not, in my experience, until clients are sitting in prison that the real reflection begins, that they start to think, hmm, maybe there is something wrong in myself that I need to address. Perhaps there is something in me which needs uh, some sort of attention. Now, we are in church. This is a safe place. We have come before our God and we have confessed our sins and he has promised to forgive us. So let us not be defensive, but let us consider. Let's reflect on the accusations that Malachi is making. Let's ask ourselves the question, do we bring lame animals? Do we marry non-Yahweh worshippers? Do we divorce? And what is going on here? Because we don't even do animal sacrifices anymore. What's the point of this? This is not the specific behaviours which are problematic, but it's the underlying heart conditions which are going on here. Lame animals, we're not giving our best to God. We're not prioritising God. We're not looking to give 
our first fruits to God. We're looking at marginally meeting the minimal requirements as it's looked on from the outside, being good enough, giving enough, serving enough. It is not our whole life that we are giving. It's just small pieces that make us look like we're good enough. Marrying non-Yahweh worshippers. Now, this has got implications for us today. The clear implication being people who grow up and start and marry someone who's not a Christian. And it's not like God is saying marrying a non-Christian is just a law that I've made. There's a purpose behind that, a very big purpose, that intimacy, that sense of connection, that smallest unit that institution which God set up in Genesis, the family, is supposed to be the place that we center our lives around God. The marriage of the man and the woman is supposed to represent the, that core unit which prioritizes God together, supports each other in prioritizing God. And these Israelites were saying, hey, we want to just go and marry whoever we want. Those women are attractive. They give us different and new economic uh, uh, options. We can build trading relationships. We can get what you haven't given us, Yahweh, our own way. But to do that, as part of the priorities uh, that were put down on them to do that, they had to make their wives the second wife or the current wives, the Jewish wives, they had to make them less important. So to do that, many of them would divorce. So we have this situation, not about lame animals and marrying foreigners who don't worship Yahweh or divorcing, not specifically those things, or of course those things are problematic, but of a life which is not giving their best to God, not inviting, uh, not inviting in influences that destroy and moving away from influences that support. They don't give their best to God. They bring the lame and the blind animals. They're not inviting in influence. They are inviting in influences that destroy. They're bringing into those intimate relationships people who will pull them away from Yahweh. And they're moving away from the influences that support their relationship with Yahweh. They're divorcing their Jewish wives. And so these are the principles that God is attacking in this text. Not giving your best to God. Not inviting in influences that destroy and moving away from influences that support your relationship with Yahweh. And here's a test. If your heart is inclined to those things that show your strengths to other people, then perhaps you need to ask, what's going on for me? And of course, that's our cultural training. That's what we have to do in job interviews. That's what we do when we go dating. That's what our first encounters with our neighbours look like. But really, and whilst there may be good reasons to do those things, are we doing those things for those good reasons because those good reasons are how God has called us to serve him or are we doing them because we're looking for the cultural validation? That an end in itself. Ask yourself this question. Is your heart resistant to communion with God in solitude? Now, solitude only feels lonely. Solitude with God only feels lonely when God, with God, because we're forced to be honest about ourselves. As we talked about in our confession, 
Sitting in solitude with God means accepting the level of brokenness that we have and being okay with it. God is okay with it. It is not God which is problematic. It's us that has a trouble sitting in our brokenness. So God reveals it. We don't like the revelation. Therefore, we don't like to have solitude, communion with God. So that's the problem. Our hearts are not looking for validation from God. They're not looking to find our meaning in God. Our hearts are looking to find our meaning at the things that this culture tells us are going to satisfy us. And we're afraid, in a sense, to be alone with God, to allow him to do his work within us, to be honest about who we are and what's going on. We're not giving our best to God. We're not inviting in influences. Uh, that support our relationship with him and we are moving away from the influences that we're moving away from the influences that support it and we're inviting in the influences that destroy so what does god do in response to this mess the good news is he's going to send someone and we see this in verse 3 1 i will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, many of you may recognize part of this verse from Matthew chapter 11 or Mark 1 or Luke 7. This is actually a verse that's quoted in reference to John the Baptist. And so we see here that the messenger is John the Baptist, but the Lord who you are seeking who will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire, who is coming, is clearly Jesus. This means the Lord, his temple, the messenger of the covenant, the one we desire, is referring to Jesus. Now, the scary part of the response from God is found not in that verse, but in verse 3-2. And Lissy, I think, alluded to it in our confession today. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer of soap. Now, we're full of impurities and rebellion. None of us can stand before him. Uh, we all stink. Our hope is not in us, but in God's desire to have a re redeemed people. And we're warned here of a fire. But it's not an out-of-control purely destructive fire. It's not like the Australian bushfires that completely destroyed everything uh, last Australian summer. It's a refining fire, a controlled burning. The dross gets burned off and the good remains. But here is the question that I'm left asking myself. Am I just all dross? Will I be consumed completely? Now, C.S. Lewis talks about this a little bit in The Great Divorce. Uh, here's a quote that talks about how, in a sense, dross compounds on dross. Let me read it to you. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. Now, it may not be grumbling. Maybe it's projecting or maybe it's compliment fishing. Whatever our false securities 
or our huge insecurities are, my fear is that that's me, that I'm all dross. Or perhaps even worse, at least for a Presbyterian, is that there's some self-capacity here to save that decides whether God will refine me. Is there something about me that makes me save worthy? Now, verse 5 here of chapter 3 clearly indicates not everyone is going to be refined. Some of us are all dross. Let me read it to you. So it will come to put you on trial. I will quick be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, at first look, this seems like a behavioral list. We simply need to stop sinning to be worthy. Now, logically, this doesn't make sense. If it were possible to stop sinning, there'd be no need to be refined. We see a clue here in that last little preposition, who do all of these things, but do not fear me. There is something about a presence or an encounter that creates some sort of healthy fear that makes even the participation in all those activities not something that excludes us, that leaves us burned up as dross. Now, the answer is back in 3 1, verse 3 1. Let me read it again, but emphasizing the back end of the verse this time. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before you. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Covenant and desire. We are saved when God brings us into covenant. Notice that for those he saves and refines, there is a desire for this messenger. In a sense, there's a desire to fear him, to stand in his presence. Now, what does desire like this mean? It is not being happy, clappy, kumbaya-like Christian. The truth is that the brokenness in us and this world is worthy of grief and lament, not denial. Now, there are times to celebrate, but there are also times to cry. There are times to be joyful and there are times to grieve. Christians do not have a single emotional state of kumbaya. What it does mean to desire God is that we can no longer bear the scent of our own sinfulness and brokenness, that we recognize our dependency on his grace and we see what a saviour Jesus is. We see the beauty even in the horror of the cross where Jesus stepped into our place, took the penalty that we should have had and the beauty of the resurrection, the promise of refinement, the undoing of death the undoing of corruption. Now, this comes from an encounter with God. It doesn't come from us perfecting some sort of behaviour and then encountering God or then being accepted of God. This comes from an encounter with God. And it's what we do in worship every week. We come into his presence. We recognise who he is. We 
recognize our own sinfulness, the stench of our own sinfulness, uh, sinfulness. We come before him knowing that he accepts us despite those things. Then we listen to his request to us to respond with our lives. And we respond not because that response in some way makes us worthy, but because that response expresses our gratitude for what he's done for us. Now, of course, it, it gets complicated when our idea of refining is different from God's idea of refining. So usually when I think about being refined, what I'm really saying is I want better political or economic or survival prospects. And, and in worldly terms, I guess that means I think I'd like to be a little bit more popular, a little bit more accepted, a little bit more successful. I'd like to have some more of this brokenness removed or healed. Our ideas of refinement may not be the same as God's here. Sometimes I demand that God give me what I think will give me validation from the culture. Now, God's idea of refinement is quite different from this. It's about learning to delight in giving my best to God, to really leaning into that, or not inviting in influences that destroy my relationship with God. And of course, that certainly applies in that uh, idea that we use this, to derive this principle. If I was single, I should not marry someone who's non-Christian. But most of us are either dating or married to Christians. But how are we using those marriages to be influences that push us to God? How are those marriages reflecting a couple that are committed to pushing each other towards God. Same with friendships. Most of us probably have many Christian friends, but do we really lean into and depend on those friendships? Are we vulnerable? Do we hold each other accountable in those friendships for moving to where we need to move, to being deeper and more profoundly convicted to live lives that are not just oriented, but uh, found on and principled on our relationship with God. And then we can go to any number of things here, our schooling, our career, all good things. But are they influences that we've moved to places in them that can destroy us? Or are we pursuing them out of a motive that comes from serving God? And what about not moving away from influences that support? So many times I hear people say, you know, I worship God at home. I don't need to be part of a community. I don't really have time to do a lot of devotional work. I pray in the car. Now, believe me, I get that. I have a busy life too, and I pray in the car all the time. Mostly, I'll be honest, for a good parking spot. But we need to do better than those things. We really need to be saying, no, I need this community. I need to do the hard work of moving into these communities. I need to get to know people well. I need to develop these relationships of accountability and vulnerability. I need to take advantage of what's there for me. Now, I don't want to be prescriptive. Some things are right for some people and not right for others. But we have provided here things for you to consider to do that. There are service groups you can be part of. There are small groups that we're trying to get up again. I really want you to, to feel encouraged, not out of some sense of duty, but some sense of opportunity 
to pursue deeper and more powerful relationships in those contexts. What does it mean, in a sense, not to place anything else above our loyalty to Christ? In fact, to be motivated by nothing but hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. What would it mean if that was our primary motivation for all we did? Now, I think there's two observations that need to be made about this refining process. First of all, this refining process is liberating. Now, this can be hard to see when we're trapped in the cultural validation cycle. But can you imagine how it would feel to be enough, just as you are, nothing to prove, no validation to seek? But the second thing is a little bit harder to take. God's process of refinement is hard. It means giving up, laying down our affections. Remember that the fire in God's family is for refinement, not destruction although sometimes it's hard for it to feel like that. The Bible identifies two ways refinement works within us, although theologians, theologians sometimes use different and various names. The first one everyone agrees on, and it's the least appealing of all, and that's affliction. Affliction that drives the covenant children to God, maybe not immediately, maybe after a period of frustration and anger with God, but ultimately, if you're a child of God, when you face affliction, you're eventually driven back to God. We, we read about that in the first chapters of James and the first chapter of First Peter. Now, the other one is the one that people have all sorts of names for. They talk about prioritization or self-denial. I think the right word here is submission, although that's really not a popular word in our culture. And it's leaning into a life where who we are and what we do is more defined in our hearts by God and by anything else. And, and Romans 8.13 gives us a sense of this. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, notice these are both Spirit-led activities, both not the affliction, but our response to the affliction, which drives us to God, and this ability and desire to submit. Now, we're in Lent. It's a time of reflection. Now, hopefully, You've already come to the conclusion in this series that there's a lot of dross in your life. Hopefully, you've already concluded that you need Jesus, covenant messenger, savior, refiner, to be free of the dross. So what next? In this time of re reflection, I would encourage you to ask God some of these questions. Where am I not giving my best to God financially, devotionally? And lean into that. How am I inviting in influences that destroy? Is it in the way I am not properly interacting in my marriage or my friendships or my career or my behavior choices? How am I moving away from influences that support my relationship with Him? Church, devotional time, small groups, scripture reading at the dinner table, praying with a spouse. In this time of Lent, let's listen to God and respond to the power of the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit and be accountable to someone in this process. Be accountable to respond to a spouse or a friend, a brother or sister in Christ. Commit to giving God your first fruits in addressing the small areas he convicts you to. Pray, listen, learn. Make the hard sacrificial choices of submission to
to move away from the voices of our culture and delight in hearing God's voice say, well done, good and faithful servant, even in the midst of our wretched, stinky brokenness. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the prophet Malachi, who is both fully aware that we can't do it on our own, that we need a saviour. We thank you, Father, that in this text, he points us very clearly to your son, Jesus. So, brother, we, we pray as we lean into that, as we look at the beauty of what happened on the cross, as we move towards Easter, as we reflect on how stinky and broken we are, that we learn to slow down, that we're not afraid to sit in your presence, that our brokenness is something that we can be okay with too, so that we can hear you in your small voice, ask us, move into this, give me more, move away from this, don't let it influence you the wrong way, move towards this because it's a good influence and help us commit fully to that process. More and more, Father, we pray for your refining fire, powerfully working through your Holy Spirit in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.